So on Thursday night, I had the privilege of being in conversation at the public library with Masha Gessen, the brilliant Russian-American journalist and author who, in the pages of The New Yorker and 11 books, has warned us for years about the, <clears throat> about the danger of Vladimir Putin and the threat to, of autocracy in the United States. Coming two nights after the election, the title of Gessen's talk was The Politics of Hope. And they reflected on this moment in our, in our country, in Israel, and in Russia. They talked about what it looks like to live responsibly on the inside of an unjust or even genocidal regime, the ethics of leaving such a place, the perspective of exile, the discipline of hope. My job was to follow the talk with questions and conversation about the issues that they raised. Honestly, I didn't feel like I did a very good job. I tried, but my questions weren't as crisp or as sharp as I wished them to be. And later that night, in the middle of the night, I woke up frustrated with myself, hearing so clearly all the questions I wished I had asked, able to see in the middle of the night what I couldn't see in the moment, and wishing deeply that I could do it all over again. Perhaps you've had an experience like this. It's what we call learning. The part about waking up in the middle of the night frustrated, the suffering of it may not be necessary to the process of learning, and I wish I could tell you that that was an isolated experience in my life, but the part about understanding things after the fact that we didn't understand before, that's growth, that's learning, and it is the best thing we've got. Tessa and Gabe, you both brought us into a process of learning today that we call Torah study, or Drisha. You both looked inside of this very ancient text, a text that you both point out has content that is strange or remote or even offensive to us today. But you went looking into this old text for lessons that we need now about the ethics of sacrifice and the value of human life. Another perspective on the question you asked, Tessa, is whether everyone deserves a second chance, a chance to keep learning and growing, even if they've done terrible things. Note that in many states in our society today, the Abraham who appears in the Midrash you cited, Gabe, would likely receive the death penalty. A man who hears a voice telling him to bring his son to a mountaintop, tie him up and slit his throat, and then does it, would at least have life in prison without parole and very possibly be executed. But in the Torah text, Abraham is given a second chance with the ram and the angel that stops his hand. And of course, as you note, Gabe, the story has been an invitation to learning not only that your uncle wrote a book about and some of the best minds of history have grappled with, but even more than the invitation to learning that the Akedah has been for the generations who follow, the Akedah is the culmination of learning for its own generation and those that preceded it. For however we read into the psychology and theology and ethics of Abraham's actions, we know that the story itself serves an important function. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs tells us, we know from Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, and independent evidence that the willingness to offer up your child as a sacrifice was not rare in the ancient world. You mentioned this, Gabe, but it was actually not rare at all. It was commonplace. Tanakh mentions that Mesha, king of Moab, did so, and there's archaeological evidence, the bones of thousands of young children, that child sacrifice was widespread in the area. The Akidat is at most basic, a line drawn against child sacrifice. 
From the terrible experience of nearly sacrificing his own child, Abraham learns that the God he serves does not seek or permit child sacrifice, and the religion he is founding will ban it. We can see societal learning represented in the text itself, and this is parallel to God's own learning, as you describe it, Tessa, about which lives are worthy of destruction or about the advisability of ever destroying human life at all. And this is similar to the growth you trace between the Torah's approach to the death penalty and the rabbi's approach. The rabbi's approach was likely influenced by their experience of the Greek and then Roman conquest, where they saw firsthand the immorality of state power. They watched lives taken capriciously, vindictively. They learned through the murders of thousands, including many of their colleagues and friends, some of the leading lights of their generation, that they could not support state-sanctioned execution, that extreme restraint is required when one has the power to take life. You can see other examples of learning in Tanakh and rabbinic writings on matters as diverse as property inheritance for women, the abolition of slavery, and ending idolatry. What we see when we trace all of these issues is that learning is not linear. We do not learn in a straight line. It always includes steps forward and steps backward. The daughters of Zalofahad, for example, argue for and win the right to inherit property for women. But then later, that, light, that right is limited. Immediately after we're liberated from slavery in Egypt, we receive laws about how to treat our slaves, assuming that we will continue to enslave people. Eventually, the Exodus story does move us and the world toward abolition, but it wasn't for thousands of years. We meet and pledge our loyalty to the one invisible God at Mount Sinai, and then in the very next parsha, we build the golden calf. We do eventually make our way to women's property rights and abolition and monotheism, but just not in a straightforward line. Even the prohibition on child sacrifice saw regression in the examples of two of Tanakh's most wicked kings, Ahaz and Manashe, who introduced the practice into Judah for which they were condemned by the prophet Jeremiah. Psychologists argue about the role of adversity in human learning and development. There's no question that post-traumatic, stress-related, or what's called adversarial growth is real. Some psychologists observe among survivors of stress and even trauma a strengthened sense of self as manifested in self-integration and an enhanced ability to face further adversity. Also, it's seen as the development of compassion and acceptance of others, and often a desire to contribute oneself to the growth of the society. But other psychologists note that trauma can do the opposite. It can inhibit growth by trapping us in the past or shutting us down from emotion and reason. It can actually serve as a barrier, physiologically and psychologically, to learning. We are in a time of adversity, and for some, trauma. We're in the third year of a global pandemic in a period of economic instability. And whatever the outcome of this election, the autocratic threat to democracy in our generation is not over. Though election deniers did less well than expected in the midterms, they won at least 10 Senate seats and at least eight governorships and at least four became secretaries of state. The chances that an election denier will be a candidate for president in 2024 is extremely high. It has now been seven years since this threat appeared on the national stage, including the blaming of, of scapegoats, lies, the undermining of democratic institutions, and the stoking of deep divisions in our country. But the question is, 
What are we learning? Given that this phenomenon is not new anymore, given that we've had seven years to observe it, we should be learning. Not just repeating the same stuck ideas about us versus them, or retrenching into old positions about how right we are, or how superior. We should be humbling ourselves and learning. On Tuesday night, we learned surprising things about the electorate's perspective on abortion rights in unexpected states. We learned about Generation Z's desire to vote and how they vote. But we still have not learned what we need to know to bring this country together. We still have not learned what we need to know to preserve and renew democracy. Last Wednesday was the anniversary of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, the night of, in 1938 of coordinated attacks on Jews throughout Germany and its conquered lands. That night, 30,000 Jewish men were rounded up and taken to concentration camps in the first mass arrest of Jews of what became the Holocaust. I raise this not to compare this moment to that moment or to warn that's where we're headed, that is not what I think is happening. I raise it because volumes were written post-Holocaust and yet we still have so much learning to do about why human beings succumb to fascist messages and how to heal ourselves from those vulnerabilities. We still have so much to learn about our own role in creating the conditions that lead to those vulnerabilities. We still have so much to learn about how to use adversity for growth instead of retrenchment. We still have so much to learn about what causes the backward steps in our development amidst progress and how to minimize the harm of those backward steps when they come. May we humble ourselves in this moment and become learners, avid learners, so that despite our failings, maybe even because of our failings, we learn the lessons God learned in Torah we learn Abraham's lessons. We learn the rabbi's lessons about why and how to preserve and honor life. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, Mishakach.